Hello everyone and welcome to Side Dish. This is an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines related to the science of food and developing your career in a rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Bird flu is a term that's used to describe highly pathogenic avian influenza. Cases of this disease in birds have doubled in the last month. The first instance in 2022 was confirmed in a commercial flock of turkeys in Indiana back in February. And since then, over 200 cases have been identified across 17 states in both commercial and backyard flocks. The records indicate that the current avian influenza outbreak is significantly larger than the largest avian influenza outbreak we'd seen in previous years, which was back in 2015. So what are the real issues here? And do we need to be concerned? Our guest today is gonna help us with that. She is a renowned expert in poultry science and is currently a professor emeritus and director of Center for Food Animal Wellbeing at the University of Arkansas. She earned her PhD in poultry pathology from Auburn University and is a much sought after speaker and advisor in the field of poultry science and animal welfare. Dr. Yvonne Thaxton, welcome to Side Dish. Thank you, Bruce. Happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you today and uh, thrilled to uh, have this conversation with you. It's a very important topic with uh, what appears to be continuing uh, uh, evolution of, of a particular problem that uh, is well time that we uh, spoke about. So I'd like to start today by asking you to tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be your renowned expert in poultry science that you are. I started out working with the egg industry for the diagnosis of salmonella and egg products, then moved into broilers. And I stayed in those industries for about 30 years. And when I retired from there, I ended up in academia, first at Mississippi State University, where I taught in the poultry science department, a number of courses, including food safety, as well as uh, processing and bird health. Then I retired from there and moved to the University of Arkansas, where I took on the new position with animal well-being, which of course affects the way the animals are held handled, but most importantly, their health also. And so today, I sit here retired and enjoying it. (laughs) And good for you too. But that doesn't mean that we can take anything away from your knowledge of this industry and your knowledge of this particular disease, because it's been on your plate for a very long time. So let's jump right in. What is avian influenza and how do birds contract it? And what are the symptoms when they do get it? Okay, Bruce, well, the first case in the United States was actually 1924, first recording. Wow, I didn't realize it had gone back that far. And I lived through the the big one in 1983, which didn't involve as many birds, but it moved more rapidly and taught us that we had to come up with a way to get ahead of this. And so today... All of the the broiler flocks, that's the meat birds that uh, are processed, are first tested for avian influenza uh, before they are moved. And the reason that happens is movement is the primary way we spread this disease. The birds get it from contact with the infected material. And 
waterfowl are the primary vector in this. They carry this virus without being affected at all. And a lot of poultry farms are near, have ponds on the farms or near flyways. And that is the primary source of the virus to the birds. In other countries where they primarily grow their birds outside, they've learned very quickly that as soon as they start spotting it in the waterfowl to get their birds indoors. That is why the uh, backyard flocks have become such an issue in the United States because that's a fairly new industry. And they are often in proximity to commercial flocks, quite close to them. Mm, So someone that's handled those birds or been in around the house and might have collected material on their shoes or something, moves into an area where somebody who works in a commercial flock can come in contact with that material. It's, It's the highly pathogenic strain of this is so contagious, it's really kind of hard to imagine. Uh, It presents very rapidly and primarily in um, legern birds and turkeys. The legern birds is susceptibility and proximity because there are a lot of birds in a single facility. The legerns are our egg, source of our eggs. And that's why there's conversation about egg prices going up. Uh, Turkeys are grown in houses where they are exposed to the outside air, making it much easier for them to pick up the virus. Ah, So that's why we're getting a lot of turkey flocks affected by this, probably more so than um, in in proportional terms than uh, what we've seen for uh, chickens. Correct. There's two. There's two types of chickens. I want to straighten that out too, because I'm just good, very, good. Well, it's very confusing. The legern birds, which come in lots of different colors, but typically white and brown are the ones you see. Are the egg laying birds? Right. These little birds live to lay eggs, and uh, they're amazing. The birds we want get meat from the broiler birds are a different type of birds. Uh, they're they're blend. It, a hybrid of several other meat-producing birds. They don't lay as many eggs. They also like to reproduce. The legern birds would rather just lay eggs than sit on eggs to have babies. So we have two entirely different birds. I was trying to come up with an analogy for that. It's kind of like what a chihuahua and a Great Dane have in common. Oh, right. Yeah, they're, they're both dogs. These are both chickens, but they're very different. So the little legging birds are more susceptible than the broiler birds for the way they're grown and for just their nature. Turkeys are a different bird entirely. They're not just big chickens, but they are grown outside and for some reason seem to really like to get this virus. So it's unfortunate for them. The highly pathogenic form, you ask how you know you got it, it is so extreme that very often they die before they have any uh, signs of the disease. They don't last long once they get it. Even if they, if they survive, it's no more than a couple of days. Now, if they have the lower pathogenic form, we rarely hear about that because it doesn't spread rapidly because it's not very pathogenic. It looks more like a flu-type disease. It's respiratory. Right, right. 
So if it's so pathogenic that the birds pretty much die straight away, why is it that typically when a new outbreak has been detected in a population of birds that we hear that the whole flock is euthanized? Why do we need to take such extreme measures? Good question, and I'm glad you asked it. Um, the only way to control it or stop it is to get rid of the source. So we use zones. If there is a flock in block A, say we're going to pretend like we're uh, humans living in the house. There's a block in a flock in block A that ha- are infected. They're going to affect block B, C, D, and then less so as we move away from that flock. So right. what they do is they come up with the zone, and every bird in that flock or zone is considered infected. So they depopulate all of them to stop the spread. And I think we're starting to see now that the spread in the, the legend birds is slowly coming back under control. That's the only way we've been able to solve it. It's a horrible way to have to do it, but it works. Right. So, so from one perspective, this disease has an unfortunate name, as there's probably many consumers that, when they hear about it, might confuse it with human influenza and, and worse still, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic we've all been dealing with. So let's clear that up. Can humans contract avian influenza? And if so, what are the symptoms and a likely prognosis? It's, it's extraordinarily rare in humans. It is an influenza virus. That's why it has the name. Um, it is respiratory when humans do get it, but it takes... in the case of human uh, infection, it takes extreme exposure to the virus. We've only seen it with any frequency in countries where they commonly live, where they're they're housed with their animals a lot of times. They're very close to their animals all the time because that's the primary source of food and money. So they have much more contact than we do typically. There's not ever been a case in the United States that was contracted in the United States. It's possible, but it's rare. And so it's, there's no real fear of it. People get the idea because things come out about cook your chicken regularly. Well, most of uh, the IFT members will know animal food, animal uh, meat is often contaminated with other of potential pathogens like salmonella and staphylococcus and stuff. So we still need to handle this food properly to keep everybody safe, but they're not going to get avian influenza from eating meat or eggs. Right. So so even if it happens to bypass all of the checks and balances that we have in place and there there is, you know, some organisms that might end up on the the meat for whatever reason. Uh, it's it the risks are relatively low. Is that the case? Virtually zero, which is you know anybody deals with bacteria. No, we don't ever say zero, but it's virtually there. Yeah, no such thing as zero in bacteriology. Yeah, <laughs> but but we you do need to handle our food hygienically all the time because of other problems. Right. But if it was on uh, a surface, even if that surface happened to be um, a food item, uh, the, the likely transmission is to another bird rather than to uh, any other species. It, it, would that be correct or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Birds are very susceptible to this. 
Humans are not. So it feels like we're hearing about new outbreaks every day. Uh, and it really strikes me as this is a particularly aggressive season. Um, is that typical and that, that it is seasonal for a start? And, and what is going on that this happens to be a much bigger season than, than previous seasons? Okay, there's, a, there's several things going on. I find it very interesting. I've been trying to watch the, the flock diagnosis. Uh, as you had mentioned earlier, a lot of them are turkey flocks, and that's right. not so unusual. But we've had an awful lot of backyard flocks that have been identified, and that's very unusual. And I don't think it's unusual that they're infected. I think it's unusual that they're getting detected and reported. I applaud any backyard grower who has worked with getting that done because they're protecting their animals as well as uh, any animals that might be in the vicinity. But a lot of the cases have been um, diagnosed in the backyard flocks more than I've ever seen before. Uh, the numbers in the the numbers of flocks has not been as alarming to me as it seems to be to you because of the number of birds in these flocks. The numbers are high. They are running in the, the, the well, as of Monday, I saw over 28 million. So that's a lot yeah, of animals. that's a lot of birds, yeah. So how do we detect it in these um, other populations like backyard birds and migratory birds? What What is actually the, the process by which we're detecting these these uh, outbreaks. USDA's Animal Plant and Health Organization routinely checks uh, waterfowl and other wild birds all throughout the year. When there's an outbreak or it's been de detected, and there've been quite a few this year detected, they step their testing uh, system up so that they're covering more birds. The backyard flocks, I suspect, are being reported because of inquiries to their veterinarians because these when they get this disease their birds just kind of appear to drop dead and that's unusual right so so does that then flow on to you know needing to be very very careful and vigilant and what have you about uh, farmers markets that might sell live birds and bird shows and and even state fairs so t tell me about what we need to be doing in those areas and another good uh point bruce the the earlier uh, episodes have all started with live markets. This one, it seems to be, we, I haven't seen any sign of uh, anybody being able to identify what the source of this one is. But looking at it, I'm going to suspect it's uh, waterfowl because there have been so many. But right. typically, they shut down things like bird shows, live markets, um, during periods of time like this. And if it starts to spread far enough, they have shut down borders like you cannot take uh, any poultry product across state lines, regardless of inspection status. That way, they contain it within the state. And the 1983 epidemic, that got to be a huge um, situation. They got as, started in New York and came as far south as Kentucky before they were able to stop the spread of it. But that was early. We hadn't learned how to really monitor for it in advance. So I'm quite optimistic that this one is about over. And I hope I'm right. <laughs> and that the next one will be slower coming. 
because of all that's learned through this one. So, so you think the uh, seasonal element here is about to run its course, and and that you think that um, you know we our season is rapidly coming to a close. So, when would you expect the season, in inverted commas, to uh, to end under normal circumstances? Bruce, I have never figured out what the season is. It's people want to say it follows the typical human season, but it doesn't seem to. As soon as the weather gets hot, we see less of it. The virus does not perform as well under those conditions. There's potential for more exposure to to the outside, but we have more air circulation in among backyard flocks and stuff, which would dilute the potential for cross-infectivity. So I would expect it to start as soon as we start seeing some significant heat if not before. So what measures are always in place in populations of birds that are grown for human consumption? Can, can you walk us through the biosecurity measures that are used commercially so that we can get a sense of what sort of level of protection is being put in place? Yes. The birds are well protected from humans, especially those meat birds. Um, if you wanted to go visit a flock, you have to have permission and an escort. And and a good reason for doing it. You would then have to don a full biosecurity suit. All your clothing is covered up. This is just ordinary flocks. You have a head covering on and mask on before you go into the house as you're asked to walk slowly and not touch the birds. You have to walk through a foot bath before you go in. That's that exposure. These birds are then tested for the virus about two, it, it varies a little bit, but about two weeks before they're ready to go to the processing plant for, uh, for preparation as food. The two weeks is significant because most of these birds are six to seven weeks of age when they're ready to go to market. So that's very early in their lives. With the egg industry, it's much more difficult to even get into a farm because of the number of animals in there. But you would go through very similar uh, biosecurity procedures, and in some cases you have to shower in and shower out, which you do for the turkey industries. You cannot go in and just biosecurity clothes. You have to actually take yours off, take a shower, and put theirs on to go through. And again, it's hard to get permission to get in just to protect the birds from humans. The transport vehicles are run through uh, sanitation washes. The tires are washed or sanitized before you go drive on to a farm. I can't just drive on to a farm. I would be stopped. If I was going in, I might be allowed to disinfect my car. I might have to leave it and walk in or go in another vehicle. The biosecurity of all these animals is very tight. My mother once said we were more particular than most hospitals. She was a nurse when I say that. But <laughs> so, if I look at the um, the issues across on a more global sense, it appears to me that, that Europe's having a, a pretty tough year as well. The biosecurity measures in other countries similar to the US, less so, more so. Tell, tell us about the contrast between what, what happens here versus other countries. The biosecurity measures are pretty strict 
across the board. There's some countries that are fairly lax, but what you're seeing in Europe is not a whole lot different from ours. The big difference is most of their birds are grown outside. And so they're exposed to wild, uh, wild birds to, well, of course, waterfowl, but, uh, and the leavings of any animals that fly over. That's what I mentioned earlier. They immediately, when they have these outbreaks, move them into a facility. Um, there was, there's been, a, as you know, a big movement to get birds outside thinking it's healthier for the birds. And, of course, when we have this going, the opposite is the case. So they move them back inside until the threat has passed. But as a result, they do seem to have more, more frequent outbreaks than we do. Right. So, so is there any possibility that we can see an end in sight to uh, avian influenza as, a, as an issue for us? In other words, uh, is there any possibility that you think it can be eliminated or controlled via vaccine or some other mechanism? Unfortunately, they've, the, the vaccines that have been developed aren't that effective. And I make the the analogy is somewhat like the flu vaccines we all get. You know, uh, you have a different one every year. It's not the exact same flu. These flu viruses really do like to kind of change around. It just, if they could ever come up with them, it was absolutely effective. It would be very helpful with turkeys and the legged birds, the egg-laying birds. Broiler birds often, I mean, their lifespan is so short, I don't know that they would develop immunity, but they are the big problem uh, through these uh, <laughs> uh, through these kind of epidemics. I laugh a little bit, which is not funny, but I once asked an official at a meeting, uh, so who's going to be in charge of vaccinating the waterfowl? And that's the problem. How do you, how do you control a wild bird population? And that's the vector here. They are... Um, Sometimes they are infected and sometimes they aren't. And this year, there's a lot of them. There's a lot more uh, being reported as carriers of the virus than I have seen in some of the uh, past incidences. I don't know why that is, and I haven't seen any speculation as to why that is. Um, And as I said earlier, they have stepped up the testing of those to see if they can figure out why. But that's the big problem is how do you deal with a wild bird population? Yeah, I, mean, it, I, I do agree. It does seem to be different this year. I mean, I even read recently that our local zoo was taking all of their various bird populations off exhibit in order to help protect their resources and, and possibly even to prevent further spread of the disease. That that's again suggests to me that we've got something different going on this year. Have you got any insight into what that might be or which direction we can look in that area? That's a, a very interesting and very complicated question. Um, a lot of the birds in the zoos are susceptible to this, and they're outside too. So, and and as you if you go to a zoo very often, you are you always see wild birds, especially where they have uh, waterfowl on uh, exhibit. There will be wild waterfowl landing in to take advantage of the nice, uh, right. nice yeah, I've seen that. hides that they have. So they're very smart to be doing that. Uh, it also has uh, looked at times like some of the other animals might 
become reservoirs of the virus. So they're trying to protect their their entire population by restricting the access, which I think is the right thing to do. Mm, exactly. So with all these birds that are being culled, what's your view on how that might impact our food supply, both in terms of fresh poultry and eggs for that matter? Well, it typically raises the price of eggs slightly for a period of time until the population is uh, brought back up. And turkeys, because the the market of turkeys, the big market, is somewhat seasonal. If it happens at the right time of year, it doesn't seem to have quite the impact on the consumer. It has a huge impact, of course, on the uh, turkey growers and uh, processors because their birds are much older. So we'd be worried about turkeys that are consumed for Thanksgiving now. So it could, depending on how this uh, the result of this disease spread shows up, it could impact us then by raising prices or even availability. Right, right. So what can each of us do in order to help contribute to the control of this disease? You got any um, tips? What, what would be your top three tips for us as uh, the general population that we need to be thinking about in order to help, help contribute to not adding to it and, and hopefully uh, controlling it? The best thing that we can do is stay away from the areas surrounding farms uh, that grow any kind of uh, birds and don't gather in groups in uh, in areas where you have a lot of bird population. But for those of us that live in, the, in town, there's not much we can do. Uh, if you live where you have swimming pools, water, and you get visited by mallards, as my neighborhood pool has been this year, it's helpful to discourage that and not have them around because that can start to spread to other birds in the area. But there's really not much we can do except like we would do with human flu, and that's stay away from infected animals. So I think what you've done today is give us a bit of an overview of the disease and the challenge associated with it and the problems associated with it. And I, and I hope today that we've maybe inspired some folks to say, wow, this is a really interesting area of study. So as we finish up today, what advice would you give to those listeners who've been inspired by the information you've shared? How can they get involved in the world of poultry science? Oh, my goodness. There's a lot of ways. First of all, you can always check with the local uh, poultry science department, but your extension service and your local poultry industries or companies, if there's one around that you can deal with. It's a fascinating area. I've been in it for 47 years and I loved every minute of it. No two days were the same. If you're young and getting going, think about epidemiology as a area of study. And that's gonna help us more with these kind of situations than anything else. It's learning and understanding the spread of the disease. 
Uh, epidemiology is not as well studied in these areas as it is in some of the human areas. And in fact, the only time I've ever worked with epidemiologists on poultry diseases, it was a human epidemiologist. So we need somebody that knows something about poultry. And food science is full of opportunities. There's lots of food technologists that work with poultry. So keep it going. And I love to get the good products that we can get because of food technology today. Well, Yvonne, thank you very much for your time and your your amazing insights today. And, And hopefully that can help us to sensibly navigate the challenge of yet another potentially adverse impact on our food system. So let's hope that your advice is, uh, lands and, um, and people can take a, a, a comfort from it and, and know what they need to do going forward. Thank you also to our listeners. If you're enjoying Side Dish, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you source your podcasts of connecting with IFT. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at IFT and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and LinkedIn. For more on this subject that we discussed today, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject or any other subject that you might be interested in in the search box to gain access to a ton of resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone.